Excited to share this episode with you today. It did not go in the direction we originally thought when we turned the microphone on. And I love when that happens. Uh, we talk with Sangeeta Madhavan. She works at the University of Chicago, Illinois, and she studies brain plasticity. But that's not the direction that this conversation took. See, her research led her to using something else, telerehabilitation, and she got really good at it to the point where they were actually able to research telerehabilitation. And she got asked to talk about that and her work at the California Physical Therapy Association annual meeting, even after she said no, like twice. She was like, no, this isn't my area of expertise. But it kind of became that. So an interesting redirect on episodes, and I love, love when that happens. Want to say thanks to our friends at MW Therapy. Switching your EMR should be easy, not a headache. I mean, it should do something for you. Easy to use, solve a lot of your problems, all in one customizable EMR. That's what MW Therapy does. Take a test drive now at mwtherapy.com. And where's your career going? Where do you want it to go? Jackson Therapy Partners provides awesome adventures in patient care for physical therapists who care about where they're going. Maybe travel th therapy is something you want to do. Visit them online to find out more, jacksontherapy.com. Plus, our friends at Owens Recovery Science, a single source for PTs looking for certification and personalized blood flow restriction rehabilitation training, BFR, as the cool kids are saying. Uh, find out more about BFR and how you might be able to apply it in your clinical practice at owensrecoveryscience.com. All right, let's get into this great episode. We talk PT, drink beer, and record it. This is the PT Pinecast. <laughs> That's the fun thing about podcasting is we sort of just grip it and rip it. All right, so Sangeeta Madhavan, how close did I get? I pretty close. I would say nine on 10. Nine on 10. I'll take nine on 10. Uh, thanks for being on the show today, taking uh, some of your valuable time to talk with us. You're going from where you are in Chicago, you're going to California, and you're going to present for the California Physical Therapy Association, their annual meeting in person. How did you get wrangled into that? How did they get you from, from Chicago to go all the way out to California? Great question. First, thank you for having me. Um, I'm not sure. They contacted me. Someone from California PT Association contacted me and said, hey, would you mind doing a talk on tele-rehab? And I said, you know what? I am known more for my work in stroke walking recovery and brain stimulation. That's my area of work, and I'll do a talk on that. Uh, but they said, no, we want you to do a talk on tele-rehab. And I said, why are you asking me that? Uh, but during COVID, um, which has now gone on for two years, I don't remember which year of COVID was yeah. that, we published a commentary on tele-assessments. So my lab does stroke walking studies. And um, with COVID happening, our research lab had to be shut down for a few months, just like everybody else's got shut down across the world, um, right? Or most of the world anyway. And so at that point of time, we started thinking about how can I do my research via telehealth? Because that's when like Zoom came on, like all of us got familiar with Zoom. Things were just happening much more virtually. And I started thinking, what can I do to actually advance my research so patients don't have to come into my lab on a frequent basis? We were trying to reduce how many people were there in the room at the same time, how many visits they would make and things like that. 
And I started digging into the literature. I'm a PhD by training. So anything, if I have a question, I'm going to PubMed and start like searching for answers. I'll start with Google though, I'll tell you. <laughs> but I advise my students not to go on Google for answers that, you know, for scientific answers. So starting with Google. And I realized that there's really not much in the way of teleassessments and telehealth for what I was specifically looking for. And we published a commentary in our journal. And so that's how I think it started with my kind of foray into tele-rehab. And I think that's the paper that one of the organizers of the California Physical Therapy Association conference read and contacted me. You pivoted. You took this problem and you researched it. Like you, you, a lot of times we, uh, we say if, uh, if all you have is a hammer, the world is full of nails, right? Yeah. And that can, that can freeze a lot of people in terms of, well, if I only know how to do research in person and we can't be in person, oh, I'm done. I'm just going to sit here with my arms crossed. I'm going to wait. And then I think there's the other half of the, the, the population that says, well, if, I, if there isn't a bridge, let me research who has already solved this. And if mm -hmm. no one's done that, there's a smaller percent of the population that says, well, if no one's done it, I could do it. And that right. seems like what you did. I, that's what I am a researcher. We are trying to come up with answers to questions. We're trying to find new questions and kind of keep, you know, building everything. So, so that's exactly what we did was, okay, here's something that has not been done before. And it was also more um, personal in the sense, more personal to my lab, I would say, because this would help us so much. We, we live in the, in the main Chicagoland area, but many of our participants come from Chicago and Chicago land is huge, right? right so many right. of our participants travel even one to two hours just to get to our lab wow. for a one hour screening visit. And then they are told, hey, you might not qualify for this study. You have to go back home. So we said thinking about it, how can we actually enable access to research and to healthcare for people who live far away from these big research institutions or big hospitals? So they get so they don't have to commute for these three hours to say, oh, you don't qualify, you don't fit our criteria. So maybe if I could just do it via video conferencing, um, that would just save them so much time. That would also enable us to a greater pool of participants who we did not have access to earlier. So that was kind of like a personal um, motive for us as well. You know, something, um, all these there's some amazing technologies that have come up in the last two years. So why do why don't we harness on some of the infrastructure taking to build thing, our research? Yeah, taking this thing, which is like, you know, it was designed probably the people who are in the, the Zoom lab. Well, you know, people can have business meetings these ways. Mm -hmm. So it's taking these these technologies and saying, hmm, if I twist this or if I could use this in another way. But there's also got to be a little bit of no pressure, no diamonds. Right. I mean a lot of the innovation that's come out of the last two years, it was impossible. Oh, well, now right. we're doing it. This is impossible. Right. These people are doing it and they're showing yeah. it. And I think, I feel like yours is a story of that. Yeah, yeah. Like I've been used Skype before. We've used like Microsoft Teams before, but Zoom was a word I had not. I mean, blue jeans was it, was like the thing people used at some point to right. do video conferencing. Things would not work. And, but now I can actually teach a class with 60 students online. We can chat, we can play games, we can do all these amazing things. So why not translate it to healthcare as well? That's that's where we started. So let's just start there. So you you pushed back twice. They asked you to talk about tele-rehab and you're saying, no, 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 I, I do this. But let's talk about this because you became an expert on this uh, on this application of tele-rehab. What are some surprising things that when you explain to people who maybe haven't done what you've done, 
and when they find it out, they're sort of shocked or surprised. Anything surprising come up, the, those eyebrow moments that I call them? Eyebrow moments, that's a good question. So one of the projects that we are doing is brain stimulation via tele-rehab, via telehealth, basically. And so one of the things that, I think we've thought about this before, but at that point, people were like, oh, you cannot hand a brain stimulator to a patient. What if they misuse it? What if their caregiver is misusing it? How can you even do that? But now we figured that we have, I could, I could put in codes within the brain stimulator for patients not to misuse it or, you know, for things not to be handled. So now there's like, and that was developed, of course, by the people who made the brain stimulators. But, but again, that's a surprising thing which came up was like, no, I can do it. I can control what I'm doing. By so you're actually of, sending a unit out to where a patient is, and then you're able to control it or at least lock it down in, in some certain way. We ways can so lock it, it down, yes. Wow. Yes, we can lock it down. I mean, well, the locking down is like giving codes and things like that. But there, right. are, there are technologies where you can actually go online and lock it down. Uh, but yeah, so you have to actually put in the code for the brain stimulator to function, and then the patient can get it started. And then I'm zooming with them and saying, okay, let's let let me look at you to make sure you're stimulating the right hemisphere, the right part of your brain. And okay, 15 minutes is up. We're going to shut it down. The machine again goes down into lockdown mode. And, you know, we're done with the session. So, for example, I think the institutional review board is always, I mean, that's what they're, the IRB, uh, that's right. what they're always here for, to make sure, you know, we do things safely. Um, there was another study where we said, oh, we're going to have patients stand up and down while on Zoom, so I can actually note down how many minutes it takes for them to do it, and that gives me an evaluation of their strength. And then the person from IRB calls me and says, you know what, I am really shocked that you would actually be suggesting this as a proposal to do it, because I cannot think of me doing this, and I will fall, and there's like so many concerns and things like that. And I said, you know what, not many people have done it, but we can do it. We're going to have like a set of criteria. We're going to ask patients questions beforehand to determine if they are fall risk or not. We're going to make sure there's a caregiver present. I think we can do this. So we had to give a very elaborate written response to help them understand that we're doing this safely. We're not letting any person fall down while, you know, on our watch. And it got approved. So now we're actually doing this assessment study where, a patient, we call in with a patient and we can get an estimate of how fast they can walk without them having not having actually to walk. We'll ask them a few questions. We'll have them do a few tests, which requires like, you know, just like moving around a little bit so we can get an estimate right. of what's happening. And we are like, oh, wow, your walking speed is so and so. So maybe do you want to come into our lab to kind of get started with training? Or do you want to participate in our study, which involves more strengthening and balance, which, which we think you are... Um, you know, capable of. So, so it couldn't have been that easy. So I, my, my day job, I get to work at Mount Sinai in, in a research lab, but I get to watch mm -hmm. the interactions of the IRB. Right. Mm -hmm. And like, even those three letters put a little bit of fear in my, in my heart. I get a little, you know, feeling in my stomach and for good reason, right? The, the goal of an IRB yeah. is to make sure that mm -hmm. the human on the other end of, of any experiment you've done is, is done safely and properly. It couldn't have been that easy, right? I mean, it had to be back and forth and you oh, had to yeah. be very clear about what you were yeah, doing. Yeah, very, very, for sure. You know, I totally get that they are totally, you know, they are, you know, really concerned about participants who, you know, who are in within human subject research. 
so yes, there was a lot of pushback, including like someone calling me up out of the blue and saying, how can you even do this? There is yeah. no precedent. This is not going to get approved. And then we had to provide them. It's like, hey, it's been, so it's not been done much in stroke, but it's been done in knee OA maybe, or it's done in other populations. And here's how they do it. Here's a safety plan. We're going to get an emergency number. We'll call 911, you know, just like little things like that. They make us think. They're like, okay, what happens sure. if there is a fall when you're doing it? You see a patient fall. What are you going to do? One of the things was the presence of a caregiver. So they sure. insisted that we have a caregiver. But I've been doing research, stroke research for the last 12 years. And I know that many of my stroke participants do not have a caregiver living with them. They don't even like the term caregiver because they're like, I don't need anyone to take care of me. I can take care of myself. What do you mean caregiver? They don't like that term because they are independent, functional people with stroke who commute on their own, go grocery shopping, do everything on their own. And now IRB says that this person has to give a caregiver. And that offends many of my participants. So then we would then we would have to explain and say, hey, this is for your own safety. And so they would maybe call a neighbor in. They would have right. like their grandkid come in at that time. Just little things like that where I knew this was going to be a hurdle. And IRB insisted, which is good. Now I'm actually happy we have a caregiver when we are doing these um, you know, assessments. All right. One more question about this, because I'm fascinated that you went head to head with the IRB and like you, you got them to approve this. It's fantastic. Um, was there any criteria for the caregiver or for the person in the room? Did they have to, you know, demonstrate any, you know, skills or anything, or they just had to be an adult over 18 present or what was the what was the, what was the IRB did not specify, so maybe you really? don't want to be talking to my IRB authorities. <laughs> See, I'm traumatized. Where I, I'm like, I'm trying to put it in their yeah. mouth. What are they going to ask me? It was it was just adults over 18, and right. that's a great question. I mean, then you could have criteria for like you need to have the strength. But again, these are people who live on their own, and I don't. Sure. And we do this questionnaire, which which identifies patients who are going to fall. And if the patients don't pass on this questionnaire, we are not doing these tests on them. They're automatically disqualified. So it will be people who are confident that they don't fall and have the presence of caregiver. But I'm glad they didn't ask me these questions. So here, hey, that might, that might be another profession maybe for you. I'll, maybe I'll edit this out. Maybe we'll edit this part out of the interview. <laughs> no, that's... <laughs> when uh, when you're done presenting on tele-rehab, what do you want people in the audience to walk away feeling? I mean, one of those things has to be, hey, you know, just because someone said you can't do it, I'm, I did it, we did it. And it wasn't, you know, that big, I mean, you're minimizing this, but this is a kind of a big deal. It's a pretty big step. What do you want those people walking away feeling? So, so the thing with tele-rehab is so-called tele-rehab has been, tele-rehab actually started almost 50 years back, like with the first telephone, you know, when a doctor or physician calls the patient and say, hey, maybe take, you know, acetaminophen for your fever, that's tele-rehab. So some of the earliest publications started way early, right? Any any kind of telecommunication is tele-rehab. But in the PT world, I think I, I you cannot really quote me on this, but in the PT world, tele-rehab has been a little slow because some of the things that we do are hands-on. Sure. As PTs, we want to see our patients. We sure. want to talk to them. You know, it's really important we cultivate this rapport. And some of these things we cannot do via tele-rehab. But it was only in the last decade or so, it's it's more, or maybe even in the last 20 years, we started off slowly with maybe some of these exercises can be done at home. Or maybe, you know, people call in and say, okay, I'm checking on you. And in the last 10 years or so, 
we have all these different sensors that have come up. We have mobile health technologies. We have apps, and that's been the start of tele-rehabilitation or um, telehealth and physical therapy. So in my presentation, I do not talk about the general tele-rehab that's been done. PTs are doing tele-rehab now, especially in the last two years, we're being reimbursed and covered for tele-rehab. But I'm talking about what can you do other than the regular tele-rehab going on? So what are some of the innovations that we are doing? So tele-assessment is the first innovation. PTs do not evaluate too much over, um, over video conferencing. Sometimes they might be like, oh, what, what does your hand grip look like? Or let's see your range of motion. But nothing has been done with the legs at all. So that would be the first takeaway point is you can do use some of these simple clinical tests that you've been using in the clinic you can use it via or do it over Zoom safely. It's feasible. And these tests correlate with strengths, fun tests of walking and strength. So it'll give you a good idea of how fast your patient has become, but just having them do some simple tests over the camera. And then the second thing I'm talking about is I'm talking about some um, something called as priming, that's gonna be a big part of my lab. So cortical priming or motor priming, basically priming your motor cortex, getting it ready for subsequent therapy. So priming is an innovative concept overall. Um, I think of it as a caffeine shot to the brain, right? Like I had my, I had my coffee before getting on this podcast so that I can be alert and, you know, get there. So we want the, we want the patient or the client to be alert while or before they receive physical therapy. So that's been something our lab has been doing. And um, we kind of use quick movements, quick repetitive movements. We use aerobic exercise. Um, there are many different examples of priming, but I'm, I'm talking about one example of priming, which is game-based movements in this particular talk. So it's kind of like, you know, everybody loves to play games and we have come up with this uh, really cool device, which is portable, which we send to our patients home. Uh, again, this is for stroke, this is for lower limb. They strap it onto their ankle and they play some cool games with their foot. So they're collecting stars, they are playing ping pong with their foot and things like that. So what we have shown that by engaging in these games, so it's repetitive movements, there's engagement of the participants, you are actually using your, um, you know, you're using your prefrontal circuits, you're using your motor circuits, you're kind of using your entire neural network to play this game and it ramps up cortical motor excitability or brain excitability to the leg muscles. So once they do this, we provide them with 45 minutes of exercises, which are usually done in the clinic. So once they do the priming followed by exercises, these participants do much better than just exercises alone. So what we are, what I am trying to say is do tele-rehab, but then follow it up with tele-priming is kind of the thing. So do some kind of a priming activity. And I give them an example of here's a priming activity you can do with Zoom, or we're, at least we are trying to provide evidence of priming over tele-rehab. So that's the second part of the talk, or um, at least one of the concepts. And the third is brain stimulation that I was talking about. Sure. Um, the brain stimulation, we are doing it on, a, uh, on the ALS population. So amyotrophic lateral sclerosis, I'm um, not sure if you've seen a, a patient with ALS during, um, during your course of study or treatment, but these are people who just have a lot going on in their lives. Their survival time is two to five years, and they have a lot of symptomatic management happening. They're seeing PTs, they're seeing OTs, neurologists, physicians. 
speech language pathologists, anything and everything at this point where they don't have time to participate in research. They don't have time to participate in tele-rehab. So we have this brain stimulation unit, which we use to neuromodulate their brain circuits. It's only 20 minutes. Um, brain stimulation has been used a lot in other populations, but none, not so much in ALS. Reason, reason is they're too busy to participate or they don't have enough resources. They need a caregiver all the time. They cannot travel outside of their home in most cases because their deterioration or progression is rather rapid for some people. Um, so we're doing this six-month study with each patient where we send the brain stimulator home. Uh, they do it three times a week. It's only 20 minutes, and um, that's been really cool. So we just had our first three participants finish in the last couple of months, and that's been a whole, um, a very different level of experience for us, just, just working with these patients and being able to complete a six-month neuromodulation study. It's not possible until someone does it, and then all of a sudden it's possible and it spreads. I mean, we give the example a lot, which is uh, Roger Bannister, the first person to break the four-minute mile. And it was impossible. It was impossible. Uh -huh. It was impossible. And I forget the actual number, but within a year or two years of Roger Bannister doing it, like something like 15 people did it. So it was impossible for so long. And then one person did it. And then everybody just, there, nothing changed physiologically about humans in that year, year and a half mm -hmm. afterwards. It really was a mindset thing. So yeah. I think it's great that yeah. you're talking about these things that, well, we can't do it or the IRB wouldn't approve it or it's not possible or, you know, not enough uh, attention or, or desires there. And you're just saying, yeah, I'm just going to ignore all that. I'm just going to keep doing it. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the thing is, and the thing is you want to you know, with ALS, it's been it's been quite the story for us. We're like, okay, here we have it. Uh, we were funded by NIH to do this, so it's a two-year um, study, and we said it, it it'll actually help these people who you know just maybe twenty minutes a day, and who it's like they say twenty minutes a day. Everybody can find twenty minutes a day to do something, but you really don't have to do much. And as we wait for our first participant, we're like, okay, we set up our clinical trial. Um, site and we're putting out like notices to people around us contacting physicians we're like because this is new to us als research is new to me and it's so like okay what can we do like sit back and see who's going to contact us and the first person who contacted us he's you know this person is our first participant from florida and we're like okay you're calling us from florida how are we going to do this study on you we do need some in-person visits as well because we need to be um we do some neurophysiological testing where we're looking at functional connectivity of brain pathways. So we're telling them, you know what, we need you to come into the lab at least, it's a six month study, so at least a couple of times and then in the beginning and in the end. And he's like, no, I'll come. Uh, he used to be a Southwest pilot. He's like, I have, I have these, you miles. know, I can just, yeah, I have these miles. Yeah. I can just get on the plane when you want me to. And that was just amazing, just flying in for our study from Florida and then completing the six-month study for us, coming in a couple of times, like just flying in the morning. He got to enjoy Chicago as well, you know, during the good good times. That is really short for us. But that was just amazing. And we were like, oh, my gosh, so we can actually do this. And our participants have been from everywhere. That's one of, like, the proudest moments of my talk is – look at this map. So I show a map and I say, there's a person from Florida, from Minneapolis, which is a six hour drive from Michigan, which is another four hour drive. Wow. We have a person from Colorado who wants to come in. And that's possible because of tele rehab. You know, they don't mind doing this one time visit to get enrolled in a clinical trial if they can do the rest of it from their home. And, and I never thought that could happen because I've always been a lab based study where 
participants come in daily and I have to almost micromanage what's going on. But now I can actually sit back and say, okay, this is amazing. We're able to, you know, so it, it is true. Teledrive Hub has just a broader access. And that's, that's one of the, I think that's like my star slide in my presentation. It, it, it might not excite others as much as it does to me, but for me, it's like, we have someone from Florida coming in, which is, <laughs> is awesome. So that's great. Um, there's a couple of things I want to unpack there. First, thank you for taking a shot. I mean, you said people living with ALS have a lot going on and, and some people might look at that and say, well, they're not going to be motivated to do this. So that would be other people making an assumption, mm -hmm. a raw and in incorrect assumption about a patient population who desperately needs people to pay attention to them to figure out how to help them. Mm -hmm. well, thank you for doing that. The other thing is, and I talked about this all the time. So sometimes I help organizations uh, launch podcasts. People know me as the podcast guy in, you know, in physical therapy in the healthcare space. And I start by telling people podcasting is, it's not complicated. It's, it's, it's allowing what we do with our brains or did with our brains when we sat around as our ancestors did around a campfire, it's spoken word and then at scale or at distance. And that's the thing I think kept hearing in, in your discussions of and you talking about tele-rehab, which is it puts, it can put you, it can put your team, your eyes, your ears, your mind, your voice, you can get information both ways. So yes, it is remarkably technologically advanced, but what it really does is it puts this basic stuff somewhere else through this internet or through, through, through a, a cell signal. So it is terribly powerful, but look at it for what it is. It's a basic thing, which I think mm -hmm. makes it better. That's that's exactly right, right? It's like, okay, this has been done before, but we never thought it would have the reach that it did. And that's the reason for teleassessments. If I do all my assessments online, I don't have to have, I can recruit more people who are who have right. not been Southwest pilots and who have right. those miles. Right. I can recruit anybody across the US because they don't have to come into my lab. I can just do all my assessments over Zoom. So I think the teleassessments part of it was kind of like a spinoff of, what can I do that I can just minimize the number of visits that people um, people have to come in? And you know, even that that kind of builds for also us, right? So we're doing it this for participants, but it also helps my team out at large because they are training our uh, our patients with ALS, individuals with ALS from their homes. Because some of them would be like, oh, you know what? I cannot do it until seven p.m. tonight, and my team is like no worries, it's only 20 minutes, I'll be home, I'm just gonna hop on for 20 minutes and I will do it for you because they understand how important it is, but yeah. then they don't have to be in the lab, they can just do it from you know, from home, just take 20 minutes after dinner to complete this training session. And that has been amazing as well for us um, to kind of work from home. We don't have to do, be in the lab. Flexibility or doing things asynchronously, right? My, my first career in radio, if you wanted to win this contest, you had to listen at 3.05 p.m. today. <laughs> yeah. At 3.08, it's over. Right. And you could be doing something. And right. look, look what I get to do now. You know, right now we record this at 4.30 Eastern time on Tuesday. I'm going to release it tomorrow on Wednesday. So someone, if they weren't free right now, they wouldn't have had the chance to hear it. Mm -hmm. So this one thing allows flexibility. You know that your lab, the, the the staff in your lab wouldn't be able to do it because they're going to be home with their family. All right, I can sneak twenty minutes in, and because I only have to go to the the next room and right. pop open a laptop, that opens up possibilities. Yeah, and I don't ask them to say, "Hey, you're with your family, do it," but they want to do it because they realize how important it is. Important, right? And 
because I tell them, you know what, it's your time, so don't do it. But they won't tell me. They'll be like, oh, I trained at 7 p.m. And I'm like, I, I, you know, you shouldn't be doing that. They're like, it doesn't matter. It's only 20 minutes. And I know because we developed that. It's a six-month study. We develop a rapper with a patient. One of our patients just falls asleep, and it's very hard for him to be awake at certain times. So, you know, we really try to adjust to the fact that this person is in pain or is in suffering. And so we need to do, you know, whatever we can to make this happen. It's a tool. This yeah. this takes your eyes and ears and your mind and it lets it go somewhere else very, very sure. instantly. I would yeah. say just like quickly, but it's instantly. That's yeah. fantastic. All right. Uh, so you're going to be speaking at the California Physical Therapy Association uh, annual conference. You, you better be on a plane soon. We record on Tuesday. I'm releasing this on Wednesday. The, the conference is this weekend. I will be on a plane on, th- on Friday. So. On Friday. <laughs> Uh, well, good for you. It's uh, it's uh, not a bad area of the country to go to. It's in Anaheim, correct? Anaheim, California. Anaheim, yes. Are you so the, the, hard, the hardest question you'll get this whole podcast? Are you going to go to Disneyland? Oh, you know, I don't. I wish my kids would love. Well, my kids would love to go to Disneyland. I don't think they'd love that I went to Disneyland without them. But um, we'll buy them some ears and then call it a day. Yes, yes. But it'll be fun to go to California and see the PTs there. And yeah. I also want to get feedback. I want to see what PTs think. You know, we do this in the lab, and I think it's really nice to present to a PT audience because I always find like the audience has things for me to. They'll be sure. like, "Did you try this?" And I'm like, huh, I didn't think of that. Why did I not think of that? And, you know, something that I can bring back and tell my lab members why, you know, why don't we do this? And this was a great idea. So it's really nice to hear from the PT audience what they think. What And maybe is this a good idea? Do you think you would do brain stimulation when, you know, when it gets approved? And I think I think it's really nice. The feedback from the audience as well is something that I'm looking forward to. Love that. In uh, in real time. Uh, feedback and conversation and questions is, is, is always good to spur the mind. All right. Uh, on the show, we have a feature called, uh, it's usually called three questions, but I'm changing it today for you. It's called one big question. Are you ready for the one big question? Okay. It's right, a little scary. Uh, All right. One big question is brought to you by our friends from physical therapy and balance centers. Uh, you want to open a PT practice thinking about selling your practice. Both of those things can be scary. Know this, on average, a private practice that joins the physical network grows more than 40%. If you're ready to discover how the largest network of PT private practice owners are growing and adapting to industry changes, visit physicalfranchise.com. And they spell it funny. It's F-Y-Z-I-C-A-L franchise.com. All right, so the one big question is, uh, what's a book that you would recommend that someone uh, read that really inspired you? Something out there that was that was really inspirational to you that you'd suggest? Uh, this is this is a tough question. Um, I read a lot in terms of fiction, though. I I'm an avid fiction reader. I cover okay. almost twenty to twenty four books, but I'm I'm very into organization and effective time management. So. If there's one book that someone is thinking of, you know, I want to I want to manage my time effectively, especially with all these things that are happening. There's really no distinction between work and family life. Everything just overlaps. Nice. I would suggest um, I like Atomic Habits. Yeah, that's, James that's, Clear. yeah, by James Clear. I think it just breaks down into small things you can apply to your personal life, your professional life, anywhere for you to succeed in whatever you want to do. I like how we went backwards he went backwards before he explained what to do. It wasn't just you read the book and you just said, okay, James Clear, I'm going to follow what you did. He explained why habits 
mm-hmm. sick. And like, you know, I mean, like on a psychological or biological level, like this is why we want to lose weight. And here's why when we try these crazy diets all the time, it doesn't work. You haven't built a habit. Right. And I think it's also helpful in terms of a clinician talking to a patient about, you know, you need to do all these exercises at home, but helping them break it down into smaller habits wow. or having giving them like, oh, maybe do it at 5 p.m. every day. So I think it gives us strategies as clinicians to talk to our patients as well. So I think it can be applied into different aspects of your life, uh, both personally and professionally. Yeah, that's a good book. Atomic Habits, James Clear. All right. So that is the uh, that's the one big question. You got past it. No pressure. Okay. Um, the last thing we do on the show is called the parting shot let's do that all right the parting shot brought to you by our friends the academy of orthopedic physical therapy leaders in orthopedic pt they're uh, newest flagship research, uh, resource, the fifth edition of uh, uh, Current Concepts of Orthopedic Physical Therapy is out now. Uh, we, we call it the perfect GPS to your OCS. No matter where you start, it's a good roadmap to take you from an orthopedic PT to taking that OCS exam confidently and competently. Find it uh, right now at orthopt.org. So, Sagita, the parting shot is your last chance for a mic drop moment. What do you, you know, like before you exit this the stage in California, like that last thing you want to hit the audience with and really burn on their brain and leave them with something, what would it be? What's, what's your parting shot? I would say if there is something that has not been done before, then do it. That's the exact reason why you should be trying to do it. Oof, that hits hard. I like that. Yeah, that's the reason. No one's run the four-minute mile. That should yeah. be the reason to do it. If no one's yeah. done stroke rehabilitation via telehealth, accept that challenge and say, hey, not good enough. Why haven't they done it? And why not me right now? Yeah. Excellent. Uh, well, thanks so much for your time. Uh, we'll make sure to share your contact information in the the show notes of this episode. And uh, have fun out there in California. Not too much fun, but have some fun out there in California. Thank you, Jimmy. Thanks for having me on the show. They say the best conversations happen at happy hour. Thanks for coming to ours. Like what you hear? Tell a friend or leave a review on iTunes or Google Play. The show today is brought to you by the Brooks Institute of Higher Learning, an innovator in providing advanced post-professional education. The Brooks IHL offers seven on-site PT residencies, including orthopedics, women's health, geriatrics, pediatrics, sports, and neurology, as well as a neurologic OT fellowship, a competitive OMPT fellowship, and a speech therapy clinical fellowship. Therapists that complete a residency or fellowship through the Brooks IHL will markedly advance their knowledge and skills in a specialty area of practice. Learn more about how a residency or fellowship can help you advance your professional development at brooksihl.org. Our home on the internet. PTPinecast.com. Created by Build PT. Build PT provides marketing services specifically for private practice PTs. From website development and hosting. Providing content marketing solutions for PT clinics across the country. See what Build PT can do for you today at BuildPT.com. The PT Pinecast is a product of PT Pinecast LLC. It is hosted and produced by PT Pinecast CEO Jim McKay and CBO Sky Donovan from Marymount University. 
We talk PT, drink beer, and record it. This has been another pour from the PT Pinecast. The PT Pinecast is intended for educational purposes only. No clinical decision-making should be based solely on one source. While care is taken to ensure accuracy, factual errors can be present. More on the show at ptpinecast.com.